Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where no one's going to tell us to ride in no lousy school bus and Mad Max to the Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minute 73, which begins with Max approaching the crowd of compound dwellers, and it ends with Max petitioning Papagallo to drive the rig. We open up this minute watching Max approach the group, still using the feral child as a crutch. In the background, very faintly, we can hear Papagallo talking about the plan. He continues his explanation, his briefing from yesterday, by saying, that's our rendezvous. And he's, of course, referring to the Powder River Bridge that may or may not actually exist. But he says, that's our rendezvous. Give us till sunset. If we haven't made it by then, keep going. One thing that really stands out to me about how this initial shot is set up is that we are focusing primarily on Max and how he's using the feral child as a crutch. But it's Max and Brian May's score that we're focusing on, and Papagallo's words are really an afterthought. We're not supposed to worry ourselves with the details of the plan and where the rendezvous point and everything like that is because it's not important in this moment. What's important right now is that Max is not content to just lie there. I also like that... It's made so clear to us that the rendezvous isn't important because Max isn't going to the rendezvous. Right. In this story of Max, the rendezvous means absolutely nothing. The plan means something. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, he participates very heavily in that plan. But once his part of the plan is over, he has nothing to do with the rendezvous. He's not going. Yeah. I think at the end of this movie, when the compound dwellers are driving away in the bus and the feral kid is peeking out the back window, I think that's supposed to be at the rendezvous point because Max and the gyro captain and the feral child end up heading that way anyway. And I think that final shot, that final departing shot of the feral child looking at Max through that back window, that's the only reason that we still have that dialogue in the background that's still audible. Mm -hmm. And not just audible, but when you have the subtitles on, those are the subtitles at the bottom of the screen. Mm -hmm. Papagallo's rendezvous plan. Now what's super important, as I mentioned before, is that Max is not going to take all of this lying down. Before we move on too much further, I have a question, mm -hmm. a supposition for you. Do you think that the compound dwellers were going to leave Max for dead in the infirmary van? Interesting thing about that infirmary van, and we're not going to see it until a week or two down the way. Oh, did it go with them? This is flash forwarding, I think, to next week. But when we see the caravan leaving the compound, that ambulance, infirmary, morgue, truck is among the vehicles in that caravan oh okay so that's if, uh, of course it is because it's all their medical supplies i wonder if max had just stayed unconscious if he had stayed sleeping and they got to that point where everyone was just leaving he probably would have woken up and they would have been out on the road and he would have been like oh where am i where is this and they would be like oh hey he's awake yeah okay I'm glad you pointed that out because in my head, I was picturing the events that truck did not go with them 
And it was going to stay in the compound to be blown up <laughs> with the rest of the compound. So thank you <laughs> for that little spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of eases your mind a little bit. It does. Yeah. In the infirmary van was also David, the quiet man. Yep. Who was apparently dead. I think that's a pretty safe assumption. It sets my mind at ease that they're going to take David with them, even though he's dead. To give him a proper burial, do you think? Right. So that they can treat his body properly. We don't really have any clues as to what they do with their dead. Yeah. David is not the first person to have died in this movie, but we haven't seen any other bodies laying around. That's true. We don't or know. Or freshly dug holes or markers of any kind. No idea. Yeah. You know. Do I know? It's possible. Remember way, way, way back in the beginning of the movie in the opening montage, there's a backlit shot of Max. It looks like he's up on a hill and there's some crosses. Yeah. And... That caused us a bit of discussion about, did he go back to civilization, collect up Jesse and Sprague to see them properly buried? There were some thoughts that he never went back to civilization, that he went out into the wilderness and just kept driving. Yeah. Do you think it's possible that that scene wasn't necessarily from his past but was maybe at the rendezvous point where the compound dwellers took some time, buried their dead, and then moved on? I'm pretty sure that specific instance was a prologue shot happening before this movie, but I definitely think that the practice of burying dead could very well be a continued practice in the wasteland, that people still do that. And one of the main reasons they're bringing David's body along is so that when they reach their paradise, that they can bury him there, probably because that's what Rebecca wants to happen. She seems to be the sentimental one who forms these connections with people. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to necessarily think that that truck is just full of dead bodies, that it's their morgue vehicle. But considering when he died and what was happening in that situation and how quickly everyone had to move, I can understand why they wouldn't necessarily have time to give him a funeral. Where were we in the minute? That's right, the first two seconds. We're still in the first two seconds. Speaking of words, as Papagallo gets to the end of his briefing, Warrior Woman says, you are not coming on this tanker. And the mechanic fires back with, I sweated blood on this and no son of an unwed father is going to tell me to ride in no lousy school bus i think that definitely brings up the point that i don't think we have discussed before is it how people get along in the compound yeah that's a good point are they friendly is tension high because i don't really get along what's the atmosphere like you definitely get the sense that these are people forced together by circumstance and that given the opportunity to choose who they spend time with there's a very good chance that some of them just don't get along mm -hmm. that they would rather not live side by side with other people and i think we don't get to see a lot of interpersonal moments between the compound dwellers because everyone is so busy. Everyone is constantly either defending the compound or working to fix up vehicles. And we don't get to see those moments. And I think this is one of those moments coming out where Warrior Woman is putting her foot down on something and the mechanic is pushing back. And it's one of those situations where maybe the Warrior Woman and the mechanic just never got along. Mm -hmm. And this is just another instance of them butting heads. It's really the first time it's happened. And it could also be that in general they get along, but in the heat of this moment, 
they're yelling at each other. And I, I feel like there's a valid argument on either side. Yes, absolutely. There does seem to be uh, maybe a stigma about riding on the bus. People on the bus are the civilians, the right. people who are not fighters. The mechanic perhaps doesn't want to be lumped in with them simply because he can't walk. Yeah. Just because he can't walk doesn't mean he can't fight. But on the other hand, Warrior Woman does have a point that if he's not as mobile as maybe he needs to be while fighting on the rig, then he could be a liability. Another aspect to the mechanic being on the rig is that he has got a very specialized set of skills. He is the head mechanic in that compound group. And yes, you've got the mechanics assistant, and everyone has a level of technical ability, but he is the mechanic. And so if something were to happen to him on the rig, it would be a major blow to their society. Right. You they don't put your doctor on the front lines of a battle. Right. You put him a couple of rows back so he can still help people. Yeah. And not, not be, die. <laughs> I think it's a matter of pride for the mechanic. Yes. The rig is his baby that he raised and beefed up and fixed, and he wants to be the one to be there when it goes into battle. It's a tough decision, I think. We all know that eventually he gets up on that rig and he's mm -hmm. one of the people that fight, but yeah, it's hard to side one way or the other yes. with these characters because they both have very valid points. One thing that I think they really missed out on is that when the mechanic is on the tanker, he's just kind of sitting there behind a fortification and they don't incorporate his gimbal sling crane thing into the process. That would have been very cool. Would have been tricky because he would have had to dismantle his mode of mobility to weld it onto the tanker, but he needed it to work on the rig. Yeah. So that would have been tricky, but it also would have been really cool. Right. You put the mechanics assistant on the rig, and then you have the gimbal attached to the rig, and the mechanics assistant is swinging the mechanic around, and he's dropping Molotovs right into the cars. Yeah. Doing some pretty awesome maneuvers. I mean, sure, it turns him into a bit of a dangling target, and there's a lot of arrows and things that are going to be flying around, but yeah, everyone's but a target. I think he would have been happier doing that. Oh, yeah. He would have been delighted. And I gotta say that if this character in this type of situation were in Fury Road, you bet your butt that they would have welded that gimbal to a car. Oh, absolutely. Because it's just outrageous enough. Yeah. That's essentially what we see with the polecats. Yeah. <laughs> and Fury Road, they are not afraid to bring into battle people who are disabled in some way. The Doof Warrior was blind, right? Yep. Yeah. And he was in battle with everybody else. I think in Fury Road, the mechanic would have had his own rig just for him. Yeah. And it would have been outrageous and awesome. That's another nice thing about Fury Road is that it really gives the opportunity for the differently abled to shine. Like Furiosa has only one arm. Right. And she has to use a prosthetic to function. And there are points where she either leaves it behind or she loses it, but she's still very effective. You know, just because someone has a different level of ableness <laughs> doesn't mean they're not effective. And I feel like that started here with the mechanic. Yeah. Also, he calls it a lousy school bus. I don't think it's lousy. I think it's magical. I think it's perfectly fine. Zeta yells at them to settle down, and Max, who has more or less gotten to the outskirts of this crowd, says, If it's all the same to you, 
and if this were the trailer for an 80s comedy, there would be a record scratch here as everybody stops and turns around to look at Max. Oh, definitely. What's great about that is that the music actually fades out. The music is playing all the way up to Max saying his line. The music fades out and everyone turns around to look at him in just ambient silence. And we're looking back at Max and he says, I'll drive that tanker. And it's another great Max line. However, it's really easy to see why everyone that's looking at him just has a look of skepticism on their faces because he was just brought in however long ago, completely beaten up, bloodied, semi-conscious. They had to clean up all of his wounds and wrap him up. He's not in the best fighting shape, so to speak. Yeah, and it wasn't that long ago that we were discussing how these same people felt about Max abandoning them. Right, absolutely. We got to see the reactions from the mechanic and Rebecca when they discovered that he wasn't going to stick around. Mm -hmm. And for him to turn around and, oh, now that I need you guys, now I'll help you. Yeah. Papagallo initially straight up says the offer is closed. It's too late for deals. And Max fires back with no deals. I want to drive that truck. And it's an interesting position that both of these characters are in. Max is stranded. He's not going anywhere without their help. And he's also not the kind of person that's just going to climb back into the ambulance and lay there while other people are fighting and driving and doing amazing things. Papagallo, on the other hand, has all of those people to worry about. Their very survival is in Papagallo's hands, and the idea of placing a lot of trust in the hands of someone who just a few hours earlier straight up abandoned them and didn't care about their situation, it's incredibly risky. I can understand why he's very resistant at first. One thing that I drew comparisons to in this scene, and this sort of goes for the whole scene, is the briefing from Star Wars Return of the Jedi, where Mon Mothma and General Nadine and Admiral Akbar they're standing up in front of the rebels and they're outlining what they're going to do on Endor to take out the Death Star. It's this huge complicated plan and everyone is taking an awful lot of risk and then happy as you please in Waltz's Luke Skywalker and he's like I'm going to be part of the command crew on the Forge mission inserting himself he hasn't been there for any of the meetings leading up to it. He wasn't there for any of the planning stages. He just figured, oh, well, I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm best friends with everybody who's important in this story. I'm just going to waltz right in and just get in the middle of everything. And that's more or less what Max is doing here. Papagallo is like Admiral Akbar, and Max is Luke Skywalker being like, hey, I want to have this absolutely huge and pivotal part of the mission. And Papagallo's like, um, who are you again? <laughs> <laughs> an interesting comparison i get the feeling that in that scene you find luke skywalker annoying which isn't a stretch from the compound dweller's perspective do you think max is being annoying i think he's i would say overstepping his bounds because when you look at the situation that the rebellion was in it's very much like the situation that the compound dwellers are in they are facing overwhelmingly intimidating odds this plan is pivotal to their very survival because if the compound dwellers don't pull this off, they're going to get cut down and slaughtered like pigs. And that's kind of how it was for the Rebellion. If the assault on the second Death Star didn't work out perfectly, and thank goodness for all of those Build-A-Bear workshop rejects that actually saved their butts, that it actually did work out. But when you have so many moving parts and things are so intricate, presuming that you can just walk in and insert yourself into an incredibly pivotal and in 
important plan, it's annoying for me to think about. And I'm not saying that Luke Skywalker is a horrible, annoying person. (laughs) He has his moments, to be sure. And I'm not saying that Max is a horrible, annoying person either. I'm just saying he's just walking in with this sense of entitlement. I would like you and our listeners as well to remember this conversation. (laughs) Because I think the sentiments are going to be applicable again tomorrow. I think we see that emotion on a particular person's face. Zeta is remarkably snarky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In his reaction to Max's request... Demand? Offer? I'd say demand. Yeah. Yeah. He straight up says, I want to drive that truck. Papagallo is very curious about this development. He says, why? Why the big change of heart? Max says, believe me, I don't have a choice. And then Zeta, like you mentioned, pipes up and says, and how do you think you'll do it? I mean, look at you. You couldn't even drive a wheelchair, which, sick burn, I'll give you that. (laughs) And even Papagallo doubles down on it and says, you should look at yourself, Max. You're a mess. I love the juxtaposition between Zeta's attitude and Papagallo's attitude. Papagallo and Max now have a relationship, have history together. Yeah. They've had that conversation. They've argued. Max has punched Papagallo. So they have some history. Zeta really doesn't. So I really love how Zeta comes in snarky and Papagallo, he gets in real close to Max and he calls him by name and he's having a personal moment with Max. Yeah. Zeta's comment is for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) He's playing to the crowd. He's playing to the crowd. Exactly. Papagallo is just talking to Max. Nobody else is meant to hear this. Mm -hmm. So Max hearing all of this, oh, you're so injured and you look like a mess and they're not wrong but just give him a moment that australian super healing is going to kick in and he'll be right as rain in no time but max looks at papagallo and he says come on cut the crap and papagallo turns to walk away but max reaches out in much the same way that papagallo reached out for max and he grabs him by the arm and he says i'm the best chance you've got and he's not wrong i suppose so because papagallo may be confident in his ability to drive that rig but papagallo is also an ex-businessman ceo type he may be good at doing fancy speeches but he's not as good as driver as max max already proved once before that he could handle the horde behind the wheel of that truck and papagallo knows that of everybody assembled in that compound max is the best driver however max is also not fully committed to the cause and putting such a large game piece in his hand as the tanker the thing that is meant to keep everybody else safe it's a lot of trust and that is trust that max has not earned especially from the point of view of a viewer watching this movie for the first time that's a tanker full of fuel yeah. If Max is successful in outrunning and outmaneuvering the Horde, what's to say that he's not gonna just drive away with the fuel? Just keep going just... and ignore the rendezvous point. Yes. So he's also risking their entire supply. Mm-hmm. The very thing that is going to allow them to make that admittedly less than 2,000 mile trip, but <laughs> for the sake of continuity in the story, 2,000 mile trip to the coast. Right. As a first time viewer, for all we know, the group as a whole only has the fuel in their own tanks. 
And that is enough to get them to the rendezvous point, but probably not much further than that. Yeah, they're going to have to fill up at some point on right. the way. So they wouldn't be able to leave the rendezvous point without that tanker. So the final parting shot that we get is that close-up with Papagallo. Max is behind him, holding on to his arm, and you can just see Papagallo mulling it over, weighing the pros and cons, thinking, should he trust Max? Should he leave Max behind? What's he going to do with him? Max being awake presents a whole new set of problems. When Max was unconscious in the infirmary van, it was easy to say, this helpless person, we have to take him with us. Right. As as human beings with just like an average morality, we're not going to leave this man who is helpless behind to explode with the compound. We have to take him with us. Well, Max isn't that helpless person anymore. He's now awake and has to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So that complicates the compound's relationship with Max. Yeah. I don't imagine that they would necessarily leave him behind because Papagallo already knows what happens to people who are taken by the Horde. I mean, they saw what happened to the scout prisoners up on that hill during the torture montage. Mm -hmm. So I don't imagine that their morality would allow themselves to just leave him behind. But I also don't think that they would sacrifice a vehicle for him to use. No. They would basically say, there's a seat over here in the infirmary thing. You couldn't sit in the bus. You can come with us, but don't cause trouble or we'll leave you beside the road somewhere. Yeah, I think he's really lucky. The way he has treated them thus far, I think he's lucky that he didn't get put on the bus. Yeah. Papagallo did call Max an honorable man at one point and he knows that max can fulfill arrangements and deals and things like that this just it's too big it's too big of something and it could go one of two ways from papagallo's viewpoint he doesn't take too long to mull it over i'd say it takes him about a solid second of screen time between max grabbing his arm and saying i'm the best chance you've got and then him turning around and making his decision tomorrow. Right. It takes just long enough for us to transition between minute 73 to minute 74. Exactly. He spends far less time considering it than we've spent talking about it. Oh, well, yeah, I think that's the motto of this entire genre. Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see, despite the fact that we've all seen it before, because we've all watched the movie, but it'll be interesting to see what he decides when we catch up with tomorrow's minute. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 7 of the Road Warrior. We'll see you tomorrow.